0: So Money episode one thousand thirty nine breaking down the real estate market with expert Elise Link. You're listening to So Money with award winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a thirty minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
1: It looks like the number of listings on market has fallen by about 42% over where it would have been last year. And the number of sales are down correspondingly, and it's looking like prices are holding up. So it's not like you're going to get a great deal. And you may not have that much to choose from if you actually are buying, so it's a very strange market.
0: Very strange indeed. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You're just hearing from Elise Glink, our guest today, who is a world-renowned personal finance expert and real estate guru. She's been on the show a number of times before. I've known her for over 10 years. When I want to know something about real estate, I call Elise. And I know a lot of you have questions around, should I buy? Should I sell? Should I wait? How is the real estate market holding up? Where are prices going to go? I ask her all of these questions and more in this episode. So you're going to want to take notes or at least put this in a good place to reference many times over the next several days. Share this with your friends. Elise has been writing about this extensively. I talked to her about all the things that she's seeing and hearing from closings to selling to Market specific activity. Grateful to have Elise on the show. Without further ado, here we go. Elise Glink, my friend, welcome back to So Money. So nice to be here, Farnoosh. Thank you for
1: having me back.
0: Yeah, and I wish that I was having you back for a better reason. Uh, I wish things were better. I should say, in the economy and in our in our world, health wise, now more than ever, we need your advice. People have been writing in. Barnoosh, should I buy a home? Should I sell my home? Should I just plan on renting for the next few years? There's a lot of questions circulating on the real estate front. And you are the expert when it comes to real estate as well as personal finance, but real estate is really your niche and wanted to bring you on to give us some guidance. I know you've written about this a lot recently and things are changing by the hour. So gut check with you right now. If someone pre-pandemic was thinking of buying a home,
1: should they change their plans right now? Well, that depends on whether you're one of the millions of people who has either lost a job, uh, taken a pay cut, or now is furloughed. So if that's you, uh, you're in good company. There's 26 to 30 million of you out there right now, depending on when you actually get this podcast up. I don't think the, unfortunately, I don't think we're done seeing The unemployment numbers grow, and as of the end of April, we were somewhere around 27 million people had lost their jobs um, or been furloughed, and then millions more have taken pay cuts. The problem with that is it derails all sorts of plans, and so the corollary is when you look at what's happening in the real estate market, and right now, we're in the heart of the spring market. This should be the time when everybody is buying and shopping and listing and doing all these real estate things. But according to the latest numbers from the realtor from realtor.com and also the National Association of Realtors, it looks like the number of listings on market has fallen by about 42 percent over where it would have been last year. And the number of sales are down correspondingly. And it's looking like prices are holding up. So it's not like you're going to get a great deal and you may not have that much to choose from if you actually are buying. So it's a very strange market.
0: It is very strange and and it begs the question how much longer uh, are we going to see real estate sort of flatten right like it sounds like it's just really flat right now not much going on do you think it's going to get worse
1: before it gets better I do think it's going to stop maybe where it is now which is at a very very depressed level um and then I think it's going to start to slowly go up the question is you know, are we in the? Have we flattened the curve, <laughs> just like we have with COVID? Mm-hmm. But but it doesn't seem to be on the downside of the curve yet with COVID. And I think until we're all feeling much more comfortable about where COVID is, I don't see real estate um, taking back up in any sort of meaningful way. It would take something rather extraordinary for hap- to happen. For that to be the case, rather than, you know, unless it's not tied somehow to COVID. I also think there's some issues going on regionally. Uh, Some of these in the South, particularly in Houston, related to the oil crash. So in addition to this health pandemic, we're now seeing the effects of this insane oil Craziness, where you know the price of a barrel of oil was negative, like seriously negative, right before the May contracts came up. Um, now it's running at about—I'd look today again, end of April—and um and it was like twelve, thirteen bucks a barrel. I mean, that's just that's causing a, a huge amount of pain, and over three hundred thousand people in Houston and the Houston area alone have lost their jobs because of this. So. There's some regional issues going on, not just that, there's others too, but like in Las Vegas, you've got what's going on with the hospitality industry and all of the hotels and conferences being closed and canceled basically through the fall, and that's causing an issue just in Las Vegas. I mean, everywhere is feeling that, but in Las Vegas particularly.
0: One of the trends we're also seeing is people leaving dense cities. I'm in New York right now, Brooklyn, and there was a lot of my friends left right before the shelter-in-place orders, Uh, and they may not come back for many more months. And many of them are contemplating just leaving the city because it's not really making a case for itself as the place you want to be when there's a health crisis. And I'm just curious if you're noticing or if you think there's going to be an uptick in suburban migration, especially now if so many more people are going to be working from home, does it really matter where you live? And is that good news for some parts of the country that may have been a little quieter, maybe seeing more buying activity? And is that bad news for cities like New York?
1: Well, people are buying in New York and never moving in. So there you've got tall, beautiful, brand new buildings that are all sold out that nobody lives in, apparently. Um, so I, I don't know uh, that money. Well, that's
0: was, foreign uh, money mostly. And I think that's drying up, uh, or that has at least started to dry up. I mean, we sold in New York in February and we thought it couldn't get worse. In hindsight, we're so happy we closed when we did. But the market in New York for a while now has been a, a buyer's market. And um, yeah. a lot of money's been drying up here.
1: Well, what's interesting about this move to the suburbs is you kind of see this go in waves. And, you know, 30, 25 years ago, I left downtown Chicago and my husband and I headed up to the North Shore to a, a, ch- a charming little town called Glencoe. And, um, you know, we've been happily ensconced here now 25 years, raised our kids here, and we're starting to see the next generation come out with their little kids wandering around. But there was a period of time over the last, you know, 10 years where um, the North Shore of Chicago did not recover the way that all others did in terms of pricing. Uh, Pricing was – we lost about 30 percent of value in 2009, 10, 11, and 12, and you didn't see home prices come back – and zoom ahead like they did almost in every other major metropolitan area. You know, you would see people um, around the country, you know, millennials, and they would say, no, we want to live in the city. We want to walk to work. We want to bike to work. We want a multicultural, diverse experience. We want to take advantage of all these great restaurants. And now what you're seeing is that those millennials whose kids are really the age of school age, you know, Now they're thinking, well, maybe it would be good to go to the suburbs. So that movement was already starting to happen. And I think you're really seeing um, a change in perspective now, because while the city may have the best hospitals, you can walk around in the suburbs and not be on top of people. And I think that there's a new value being placed on having personal space or space for your family, a backyard, right? Right? and and you're seeing that everywhere.
0: That's why we're out of here. I mean, we've always had the plan to leave the city this spring slash summer, the pandemic and being crammed in our apartment with two kids and not really an outlet for uh, stretching our legs definitely spurred our plans to move and we, we got lucky, really lucky because we found an, a house in New Jersey and it, it checked off a lot of boxes and we are now moving. Um, but I... Think you know that you're absolutely right. There is a shift in desirability, like what people actually want out of where they live, um, not so much tied to where your job is perhaps anymore, but rather what is that house and where is that house and does it have a yard? I was hearing from a listener who lives in Spain. And the Spanish are a little bit further along with COVID and hopefully you know seeing more of a flattening of the curve. But she said she suspects that there's going to be more investment in homes whether that's, you know, adding an addition to the home, more landscaping, because if we're going to be, if this is our future, Elise, at least for the next few years, where every six months we have to shelter in place, I mean, doesn't that bode well perhaps for interior designers?
1: It does. But again, you know, what is our unemployment um, picture going to look like over the next two years? You know, I'm starting to see economists that I trust And I think trust is a really big factor in this whole pandemic. But economists that I trust, that I follow, are now starting to talk about 2022 and 2023. When you have a 20, 25 percent unemployment rate, and you've got the real sort of the, the quotable rate, which right now everybody's expecting to be somewhere around 16, 17%. And then you have the U6, which is sort of the total look at unemployment. And that could be easily in the mid-20 to upper 20% by the time we top out here. You know, that takes a while to reabsorb into the economy. And it's and so going back to your point about real estate, I think there's been some changes this time with how the government has forced private industry and business to deal with homeowners and soon-to-be, I think, renters, and how they're trying to preserve consumer wealth this time, whereas 10, 12 years ago, uh, basically it got destroyed and all these people who have lost their jobs would by now be in foreclosure. So we're seeing the foreclosure and the delinquency numbers rise a little bit, but what we're really seeing is that this forbearance option that was laid out in the CARES Act and is starting to be better understood as the weeks are going on, maybe saving the day by allowing homeowners to put their mortgages into forbearance for up to twelve months with no negative hit on their credit scores, and allow themselves time to find a new job and not have to worry about losing their house. Let's
0: talk about this option to f- go into forbearance with your mortgage. There, w- it was a little cloudy for a while as to whether or not this would impact your credit. Are we sure about that, that this is not going
1: to negatively impact your credit? That is how it's supposed to play out. Uh, There could always be some crazy mistakes, but the way that this has been, um, was put into the CARES Act is if you go into forbearance, like with your student loan, federal student loans, there's an automatic forbearance Um, or if you do that with your mortgage, there is not supposed to be any negative reporting to the credit reporting bureaus. And um, FHFA has uh, put into place some rules around that. And they're, and they're now talking about how this is actually going to functionally work. Of course um, coding, (laughs) because it's all about the code coding has to changes have to take place, but the credit reporting bureaus are working very closely with the government to make sure they understand the rules and to see how it's being changed. I've been doing some work for Equifax, and in Canada, uh, they don't call it forbearance. They call it uh, deferred payments, which sometimes is used in the U.S., but here we tend to use forbearance more. And in working with that, um, the Equifax Canada division, um, it was interesting to understand how the different mortgage companies report credit payments uh, on time mortgage payments or or late payments to the credit reporting bureaus and how the code actually interprets how that's how they interpret it and so the rules in Canada will mirror the ones here in the US where if you were current on your mortgage the day that you went into forbearance you will continue to be reported as paying as agreed because you are paying you are not paying by agreement a forbearance agreement right if you were late going into your forbearance like let's say you were already 30 days late you will continue to be reported as late through the forbearance so that those are that seems to be where everybody's starting whether it stays there or not We'll have to come back and have another conversation in a month because, like 12 years ago, everything seems to be changing almost week by week. But that's the current thinking of how the CARES Act is supposed to play out in the US and how it will play out for Canada as well.
0: That is incredible relief for so many
1: people. Do you know if, in fact, this has started to take effect? The number of people in forbearance is actually growing rather dramatically. And so the Mortgage Bankers Association has released a forbearance weekly report that I get a chance to take a look at in my role as a syndicated, you know, real estate columnist. And um, what it's, what it's showing us is that, you know, the number of people in forbearance, um, which is now about, I think, 7% as as of the end of April is the last number that I saw. um, It it is growing week by week, you're seeing a, a tremendous, a tremendous rise. So it's interesting to see um, you know how everybody is trying to cope with this. We're also seeing, by the way, just a credit card companies are taking a huge hit because they too are offering forbearance for a shorter period of time. Um and so if you're having trouble making your credit card payment, if you're having trouble making your mortgage payment, you must contact your mortgage servicer or your credit card company to get relief. So that's a different process than if you can't pay your student loan bill and it's a federal student loan, uh, you can get more information about that at ed.gov, and just follow the links to get to more, you know, COVID assistance. But they're automatic for um, everybody. Everybody was automatically put into forbearance if you have a federal student loan. So different processes, and you got to know what's going on.
0: Is there any downside risk to entering into forbearance with your mortgage? We know that this should not impact your credit, or is this a no-brainer then? For people so who
1: are suffering, it's it's it is and it isn't okay. Forbearance doesn't mean forgiveness, so no, nobody's going to say to you, right. "You never have to pay us the year of payments you're missing." Up until uh, literally, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to just say a couple of days ago. At this point, by the time this airs. Uh, there was some confusion about whether, if you took a six-month or a twelve-month forbearance, you would have to come up with a lump sum payment at the end of that. Believe it or not, a whole year's worth of mortgage payments all at once. So then everybody realized, oh, that's not a good idea. Nobody's going to be able to do that after having a year of no, you know, no income. Let's say, or reduced. You know, income. And so um, FHFA has just pushed through new details on foreclosure and eviction suspensions, but for, for, I'm sorry, not foreclosure, for forbearance, um, where now what will happen is at the end of the year, the forbearance period, let's say, you and your lender will come up with a modification, a loan modification plan on whether a little bit will get added to each payment until it's paid off, or you're going to take all those payments and put them at the end of the loan and just extend your loan by a year, you will come to some sort of loan modification agreement and continue to pay as agreed. So ideally, uh, nothing will harm your credit, uh, even at that point. So that's the latest thinking and the rules that are coming down from the Federal Housing Finance Agency or FHFA. Wow. Wow.
0: Okay, well, this is complete opposite than, like you said, what we experienced in the Great Recession, where Main Street felt like they got no relief and all the bailouts went to the banks. Uh, This is seems like the banks are now
1: paying their dues.
0: What's interesting is
1: what was going on behind the scenes. So when you make your mortgage payment, you pay it to the mortgage servicer and the mortgage servicer takes out their fee. They turn around, they pay it to the end investor. Well, now imagine that 10 million Americans aren't making those payments every month. The mortgage servicers still needed to turn around and make those payments to their investors. Uh Uh-oh, what happens? You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that doesn't get paid to the end investor, which could lead to trouble in that market and freezing of uh, mortgage credit, which kind of is what was happening. And so the Federal Reserve has stepped up and said that it will help provide liquidity and the federal government will provide liquidity so that lenders don't have to keep if somebody gets a 12-month forbearance, the mortgage services are only going to have to push, pay four months of that to the end investor as opposed to 12 months. And then the rest, I don't know how they're who's going to make up the difference. I think it's going to be a low-cost loan extended to the servicers. But if you didn't do that and you didn't extend a lifeline to those people, literally the next time you went to go get a mortgage or refi, nobody would be there to do it for you because the risks are just too great. And so this idea that the U.S., mortgage industry is too big to fail is still out there. And we can all see why there's no reason that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac should, should come out of conservatorship because of the, you know, what they're doing is literally to support everything that's going on. And if they were totally for profit or if some of these other, you know, industry ideas had gotten off, you know, the ground, which they didn't over 12 years on how to get them out of conservative conservancy. Um, We might not be in as good a position today. And so I think there's going to be more conversation about whether Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which basically underwrite the secondary mortgage market, how that's going to continue to function in order to support a healthy housing market for all of us consumers out there.
0: Speaking of lines of credit, I was reading the other day that uh, in, in some cases banks are limiting their lines of credit and mortgages are now harder to get in some cases. One bank saying you have to have at least a 700 credit score, put 20% down, which in some parts of the country like here in New York that's status quo, but for most of America that's unattainable. The average credit score is not in the 700s, and so are you going to see do you think we'll see more of that?
1: I think that's a reaction to the idea that they were going to have to cough up all this cash in order to pay the end investors. And I'm hoping that now that that's settled down, well, let me back up a step. So obviously there's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they are, and they plus FHA, VA, and USDA make up the vast majority of loans, right? More than three quarters. But there's still a, a chunk of the market that doesn't go through those channels, Right. So actually in New York, where you have high cost homes, um, you know, you buy a house for a million dollars or two million dollars, it's not gonna be Fannie or Freddie, and it's certainly not gonna be FHA. And so there's another group of lenders out there that lends, let's say, to jumbo loans, or they lend to people who are maybe self-employed or in cash businesses where they don't have quite the same level of paperwork. And Yeah. For that, I think it can be much harder to, they can set their own rules, right? And so they may make it harder for a while to get loans until they get more comfortable with the idea of it. We saw that actually 12 years ago. We saw the, basically the jumbo market shut down for a while as lenders tried to figure out what the heck was going on and whether they'd ever be able to trust again. Um, and, and this time we're seeing the same sort of thing, you know, investors have loads of cash to throw around until something goes wrong. And then mm-hmm. suddenly, no, we don't really want to be sharing that with you.
0: Elise, what are you seeing on the closing front with everybody sheltering in place and people wanting to keep social distance? You closings are still one of the most archaic processes in the you know, in the real estate industry it's just like this long boring experience around a mahogany table you know in some ways the the push for electronifying that process is inevitable now and maybe a good thing as it's transforming the industry a little bit waking them up what are you seeing on that side and how are people closing
1: So, it's really interesting. It's almost state by state, municipality by municipality. So, I'm married to a real estate attorney who does these kinds of closings. We live in Illinois, which still uses real estate attorneys for residential closings, like most of the Northeast. But the rest of the country pretty much doesn't. (laughs) And so, what they do is a whole different process. You know, there are escrow companies or closing companies where basically the buyer and the seller Issue a set of instructions to the escrow company, and then they make sure that all the details are done and everything gets checked off, and then your closing is done. Oftentimes, nobody even comes to the table uh, anymore, and there are many states where closings have now literally, as you say, they've become you know almost paperless, and and you don't do anything in person; everything is signed electronically. But there are a lot of states where that's not the case yet. And we, Sam and I wrote about this um, in a very recent column, which you can, um, our syndicated column, which you know runs all over the country, but you can also find it at thinklink.com on wet signatures. So wet signatures are actually the ink, refers to the ink that comes out of a pen as opposed to a, a digital signature, which would come out of something like a docusign or a hello sign. And you, you know, a lot of states still require that wet signature. So they either require that you show up as a buyer or seller or your attorney show up um, with power of attorney that you have signed and then they verified your identity and all the things that go along with it. But I think that, you know, I I think that these in-person closings are going to change until we're all feeling much more comfortable about COVID and, this novel coronavirus uh, because people just don't want to be in the same space. I, we could probably spend another half hour talking about how some of our other clients and customers for Best Money Moves don't even want to bring their people back to the office because they just are like, you're doing fine. Stay at home. Don't get in each other's space. But when it comes to these closings, there there are, you know, like 80 page documents for you to page through and and sign, and you have to almost put a signature on each page. And so what we're seeing, What Sam is seeing in his closings, and he hasn't been to an in-person closing now for about six weeks, is documents are all viewed ahead of time. There's powers of attorney or if if they desperately need the real signature, the wet signature of the buyer or the seller, they're doing drive-by closings where literally you bring your own pen or they hand you a new unwrapped pen. Somebody comes out to your car and literally walks you through where the signature pages are, they're masked, you're masked. They have gloves, you can wear gloves, and you're signing with a brand new pen that you get to keep at the end of the day. But, you know, and I joke a little, but that's pretty much how it's working. And I think you're going to see much more of that until we get this whole, you know, COVID thing under control.
0: Well, I'd love to touch on best money moves. Last time you were here on the show, you talked about this incredibly innovative software program that you've developed for companies who increasingly are invested in their employees' financial wellness. And right now, companies are not spending a ton of money on things, whether that's employees or product services, they're just trying to survive right now. But good news, your product is actually more exciting now than ever, and companies are not giving up on their mission to learn more about their employees, to invest more in their employees' financial wellness. So tell us a little bit about that good news. I thought that was awesome.
1: Yeah, sure. So Best Money Moves is now in its third year in market. And we have, I don't know, somewhere between 35 and 40 companies on the platform. We have more than 100,000 people using it. And in fact, uh, this is amazing, but we just pulled numbers. And over the last five weeks, our users are are spending as much as 700% more time on on the software than they have before. I mean, clearly, there's a need for it. And we've launched our own COVID resources section for people to find out all of this current information about, you know, mortgages and what to do with forbearance and foreclosure and and evictions if they're having that and all the rest. Um, What we're finding with companies, though, is that while they are devastated, to be losing employees now or putting people into furlough, taking pay cuts, they do want to give their employees as much help financially as they can. I mean, nobody expected this, right? We were in a boom economy up until somewhere, you know, mid-February when this all started to filter out and things started to go south. And I think companies want to, those that have um, furloughed their employees, I think they want to bring them back as quickly as they can. And giving them a product like best money moves is a good way to stay in touch with people, giving them that great information and and allowing them to understand what their furlough benefits are and what they'll get when they come back. Um, we have had a number of large hospital systems where even though they are really you know desperately trying to hoard money, you would think that they're so busy now they're doing great but for a number of reasons hospital systems and and the entire medical industry is under tremendous pressure as voluntary things that pay the bills have been set aside and no tummy tucks right now, but they are trying to save lives. And that's, that's the most expensive stuff. But they also know that their people, uh, if they still have a job, their spouse or partner may not, or has taken a pay cut. When you're looking at a quarter of the population losing household income in some way, shape, or form, it's tremendously devastating for everybody. And everybody knows somebody if not in their own house, their sibling, their parent, their child, who is experiencing this. And so the companies we're starting to talk to and have been talking to are all very excited to be able to bring a resource like Best Money Moves to the Table. So, um, And we, of course, have been doing our part. We're, we have a three-month free special uh, for all of our new customers, and we're adding three months to anybody who's already an existing customer. Um, and we welcome all companies who need this kind of help for their people. It's
0: definitely a bright spot right now. Elise, Glink. thank you so much. I've been wanting to do a dedicated episode to real estate and just answering a lot of our listeners' questions and my own questions about this. And you're always so excellent to have on and you always give so much clarity. So thank you so much for all of your work and best wishes.
1: Thank you, Farnoosh. It's always a pleasure and the show is just terrific. Love it.
0: Thanks so much to my friend Elise for joining me. Check her workout at thinkclink.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money.